The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. This is Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. If you have a fruit tree or if you're thinking of planting one, you may want to join my upcoming free webinar. The topic is Growing Fruit Trees with Ease. Easy ways to keep your fruit trees healthy and productive. Now, my first webinar is coming up on Thursday, June 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find out more at orchardpeople.com slash webinars. That's orchardpeople.com slash webinars. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hey, everybody. Last spring, I got to tell you, there was actually an invasion in the Ben Nobleman Park in Toronto, Canada. It happened in our community orchard there, and I got to tell you, it was very scary. So this is what happened. Now, usually here in Ontario, we have really frosty winters. But last year, in 2017, the winter was really mild. Still, our trees stayed dormant during the winter, and then as spring approached, they came back to life and dazzled us with their blossoms. That year, our cherry trees looked particularly lush and healthy with lots of new growth, and tender young branches emerged from the buds in preparation for a fruitful season to come. I felt it was going to be a really wonderful harvest that year. But then... One day, I went to the orchard, and suddenly those tender young shoots did not look very good. The leaves at the end of the branches became curled and twisted, and I looked closer and saw that inside the curled leaves, armies of little black pear-shaped insects were feasting on the fresh foliage. This was an aphid invasion, and it was not a good thing. Now, our cherry trees are almost 18 feet tall, so spraying the leaves with insecticidal soap just wasn't an option. The tree was too big, and the insecticidal soap, you need to, with that stuff, you need to use repeated applications. So spraying would be way too much work, and I didn't know what to do. The following week, I visited again, and I looked closer at the embattled young leaves, and I got really confused. In addition to the armies of aphids, there were now plump little red and black creatures on the leaves as well. 
I also saw longer bugs that looked like little mini alligators with their prickly black and orange bodies. I didn't know if these creatures were friends or foe. I was tempted to panic and cut off all the new insect infested growth to bag it up in plastic bags and throw it away. And thank heavens, I did not do that. Little did I realize at the time that the insects that looked like mini alligators were lady beetle larvae, and the plump, blobby-looking bugs were also lady beetles that were in the pupa stage. The good news was that they had flocked to our cherry trees to feast on the aphids. So when I realized that these little heroes were an active anti-aphid SWAT team, I left the tree alone, and I let the lady beetles in various stages of development do the work for me. Once the lady beetles finished feasting, the trees recovered beautifully, and we had a good harvest that year. So now, aphids are a problem not only for those of us who grow fruit trees. They also feed on other plants and trees. So in this episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, we'll talk about who likes eating aphids, and how and when to attract them to our gardens. Now, my guest today is entomologist Dr. Stephen Marshall of the University of Guelph, and he's the author of an amazing full-color tome, Insects, Their Natural History and Diversity. So we're going to chat about aphids and the hungry, predaceous insects that love to eat them. Now, Stephen isn't an expert in fruit trees. Instead, he has incredible knowledge about all sorts of insects. He specializes in flies and beetles as well. So if you have any questions about insects during the show, now's the time to ask them. Or you can send us a comment or just email to say hi. If you do email us during the live show, you will be eligible to win a copy of Stephen Marshall's beautiful book, 700 pages plus and full color. It's valued at $95. So where do you email? You can email us at instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. Write us now and you may win a copy of this fantastic reference book. Now let's dig into our topic. Stephen Marshall, thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Okay, so I want to talk about the bad guys first. Can we start off by talking about aphids? What kind of insect are they? And why are they so unpopular with people like me? Oh, aphids are really amazing little, little insects. Unlike a, a lot of other insect pests that, that are, are protected from predation by all sorts of uh, armor and, and, and armature, uh, big mandibles, spines, etc. Aphids are uh, apparently defenseless and vulnerable, and the way they they win out uh, uh, their their wars with various natural enemies, despite that apparent vulnerability, is by incredibly rapid reproduction, and they 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 do that with such such a, a, a tremendous success that uh, one author suggested that that they could uh, single aphid could theoretically give rise to over 600 billion progeny in a single season. What? So, oh, my you know, we'd goodness. Be, we'd be very quickly neck deep in, in aphids if they didn't have some pretty cool ways of uh, getting around this, this uh, issue of being eaten by everything out there. And the way they do that is by, uh, by incredible, incredibly rapid reproduction. So they, they, get, they bypass uh, uh, um, eggs, for one thing. They, don't, they only uh, uh, typically lay eggs for one generation out of multiple generations in a year. Otherwise, they just give 
uh, birth to, to live nymphs, and you can actually watch an aphid. Uh, look at a group of aphids, you'll, you'll see they're all going to be females. That's the other thing that they, another thing that they do that speeds up the reproduction. So that whole cluster of aphids is made up of females. Look closely, you'll see that some of them are going to be popping live nymphs out uh, uh, that will immediately start feeding as soon as they come out of their mother's body. So no females, no eggs, uh, rather no males, all females, not bothering with eggs. You'll note that most of them are wingless. So wings are expensive, they're metabolically expensive, so unless they really need wings, aphids don't bother to develop wings. During the season, they'll typically have a couple of generations with wings to move from host to host, but usually they don't bother, they just, just go wingless to wingless to wingless with all females, no eggs. Of course, uh, they do use the wings as another strategy to, to uh, enhance this rapid development strategy when conditions on a primary host become unfavorable, it gets too crowded or the, the foliage gets too old, they'll uh, uh, give birth to, to, to nymphs that will develop wings and then they'll fly to either uh, other hosts of the same, the same plant or to completely different hosts. And a lot of the most common orchard aphids will, will attack your fruit trees uh, early in the season, but then as the foliage gets a bit older, they'll leave the fruit trees entirely and develop on uh, herbaceous plants, on, on, on particular weeds. And then they'll typically come back to a woody plant. In some cases, the, the, the fruit tree, depending on the species of aphid, uh, to, to spend the winter. Uh, so they're, they're just marvelously adapted for, for, for uh, spectacular um, reproductive, reproductive success. I, I'm sorry, I'm just floored by the fact that there's no males. How is that possible? Well, that's parthenogenesis. A lot of insects use parthenogenesis as, as a strategy for uh, uh, rapid population increase, but aphids do it with with just a spectacular success, as as any orchardist will know from uh, going out and, and looking at a at a branch one day and seeing nothing, then coming out the next day and seeing thousands of little, as you aptly described them, soft-bodied, pear-shaped, sucking insects with their little thin beaks stuck into the, 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 uh, the foliage or the twigs, sucking up all that, that sugar-rich uh, phloem. Amazing insects. Oh, so, okay, we were talking about what they look like, and now something that confuses people is you can see them in different colors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, that's actually kind of a, a handy thing for those of us who want to know the, the biologies and the life cycles of particular aphids because different aphids are often very characteristically colored. So one of the most common aphids uh, on, on apple, for example, is, is the, the green apple aphid, and it's, guess, green. Hmm. And another one is called the rosy apple aphid, and it's not really rosy, it's, but it's not green either. It's kind of a, a dull purplish uh, color, but, but, you know, rosy steers you away from green anyways. And there are other aphids that are, are spotted, and there are even some that feed on uh, toxic plants, so, for example, if you go out and look at milkweed, you'll see you'll see uh, a, a bright orange aphid on on milkweed, and that assume is, is probably a um, a signal to potential predators that they're loading up on poisons from the toxic plant. So it's a bright warning color. So there's 
it, it's great. Yeah, aphids, wow. aphids are often color coded for for us. I'm glad you like them. <laughs> I'm glad you like them because I I don't, and a lot of the listeners don't. Let's talk about the the sucking the idea of sucking mouth parts. And I know a lot of when you're studying entomology, it's very important how these mouth parts work. Um, so what are they sucking? These aphids. Well. The sucking mouth parts that you find on aphids are more or less the same structure that you find on all books. And that doesn't mean all six-legged arthropods. That means all books. Because when an entomologist uses the term books, they're referring only to one particular group of insects, one particular order of insects called the hemiptera. And that includes uh, stink bugs, assassin bugs, damsel bugs, leafhoppers, cicadas, aphids, white flies, and a variety of other things in which the mouth parts are elongated out into kind of like a, a, a two-barreled syringe. And in most cases, that, that syringe-like set of mouth parts is, is slid into the host. And in the case of aphids, the host is always a plant. Uh, and uh, uh, one of those chambers is used to suck up the contents of the host. There are other bugs that, that, that feed on aphids, so they're sucking up the contents of the aphids. There's even bugs, of course, that feed on people using the same basic mechanism. Uh, some of us have encountered bed bugs, so this is the same kind of mouth parts. So in the case of, of aphids, they're, they're tapping the, the, the sugar-rich but, but, but nitrogen-poor phloem sap, so the sweet phloem sap, and they're sucking up tremendous quantities of it because they have to suck up tremendous quantities to get enough nitrogen. And this in itself creates one of the aphid problems that I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with, and that is that they poop out all sorts of uh, sugar-rich waste products. They have to pump all this stuff through their system in order to get, get enough protein. And that sugar-rich poop uh, is, is known to most people as honeydew, and honeydew is really interesting from a pile of perspectives. From my perspective as, a, as a, a fly specialist, I see it as fly fuel. A lot of flies will feed on the honeydew as, as well as nectar and other sugar sources, but honeydew is very important. A lot of the natural enemies of, of uh, uh, aphids also feed on the honeydew and build up their population numbers in part due to that resource. But on the negative side of the ledger, lots of, of uh, uh, city molds and other unwanted things also develop on on. Uh, uh, on honeydew, so I'm sure everybody's familiar with that that nasty black uh, guck you get underneath a, a pile of aphids, and that that damages your your plants. Some some insects are are uh, really dependent on on the honeydew in in odd ways that link their life cycles into aphid life cycles. So if you look closely at a bunch of aphids, among the dozens of other insects you'll see associated with them, you'll often see ants, and the ants. Are, are essentially milking their their aphid cows to take the honeydew, and in exchange they're providing protection to the to the uh, the aphids. They're protecting the aphids from the many many other predators that depend on aphids as food. How can an ant protect a, an aphid? You know, are ants so strong that? Oh sure. Really? Uh, sure. If you if you watch an ant hanging around a bunch of aphids. Uh, uh, Gluttonously consuming the you know the the the, the sugar sweet 
droplets coming out of the uh, the aphids' uh, tail ends, and you watch, for example, a lady beetle come marching in to take the snack of a of, of an aphid. Uh, the ant will will rush the uh, lady beetle and chase it off. Oh my goodness, they're pretty smart. Yeah, and and there's been uh, lots of good solid research showing that if you exclude the uh, the ants, uh, the mortality in, in the aphid cluster goes goes way up. So they're effective. Now, why is it that some years, like last year in particular, was so bad here in Toronto and in Ontario? Um, some years are worse than others when it comes to aphids. Why? Wow, uh, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Uh, most insects have have uh, cycles and in, in, in their, their their relative abundance, and, and in many cases, that's that's due to the uh, the buildup of natural enemies of parasites, parasitoids, and, and predators. So the, when when the numbers of a particular species get high, their natural enemies track that that abundance and 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 uh, also become more abundant leading to a population crash in the in the uh, in the host uh, which will lead to lower numbers the next year which will lead to lower numbers of, of natural enemies and and so on and so on causing a a, a a perpetual cycle so that's one possibility another possibility is is that the it, it was a climatic thing a cold winter could could lead to uh, a cold wet spring uh, is uh, uh, in some cases more disadvantageous to the natural enemies than to the aphids so aphids might get a, an advantage and build up a, a greater population or vice versa it depends on the species and the and the uh, uh, weather conditions so in other words, I don't know. <laughs> you got some ideas, but well, here's my other question. And I was surprised to see looking through your book and, and there was mention, I think, of weeds. Now, what role does do weeds play in all of this? Well, that's an interesting question. And it's actually a somewhat controversial one because there are several uh, widely cited papers showing that uh, if, if you have uh, a variety of, of weeds close to your, uh, your fruit trees, the numbers of aphids will, well, according to the papers, uh, either decline or increase. So it's mm. not that, that simple. In, in many cases, uh, the numbers of aphids decrease because the weeds provide uh, um, a refuge for the, uh, the diversity of predators and parasitoids. So the weeds are providing uh, alternate food sources when, when the aphids haven't built up their populations yet they're providing a nectar source, a pollen source, uh, a, a refuge, and that diversity of predators and parasitoids can then move into the, uh, uh, the fruit trees and, and, and uh, drive the aphid numbers way down. There's been, been quite a number of really interesting studies uh, uh, of, of that. And it's not just weeds. Uh, people have looked at different kinds of flowering plants and, for example, shown that, that I, I just recently read, read a paper that showed alyssum planted in, uh, uh, in orchards uh, led to aphid, uh, aphid suppression uh, because the flower flies that like to feed on alyssum flowers uh, are the major, major predators of, of, of aphids. So as the flower fly numbers went up, the aphid numbers went down. Wow. But as a cautionary note, uh, in perusing the literature about that, that, that uh, uh, nice, uh, simple story, I also found a number of papers that showed the reverse effect, uh, where, where people, uh, for example, studied the uh, numbers of aphids in apple trees close to uh, um, uh, flowering peach trees 
and they they found for some reason that that those flowers uh, didn't increase the natural enemies in the in the apple trees, but they in fact led to larger numbers of aphids in the apple trees. So I don't know. I'm, hmm. I as, as I as I, I told you before we we started talking, this isn't really my area of research. I'm I'm uh, casually familiar with with the literature, and I haven't sat down and and and. Uh, Weighed the debate very carefully, but I, but I, but I note with interest that there are two sides to the story. Interesting. We've got some emails, so let's go through them and see what we've got. So we've got an email from Chris, but I don't know where Chris is emailing from. So here it is. Hi, my squash was so inundated inundated with aphids that the fruit was deformed. I tried neem oil and ladybugs. The neem oil looked like it did nothing, and my $8 worth of ladybugs hit the road after a couple of days. Pulled the um, And he says, uh, or she says, pulled the squash to protect my tomatoes. So um, that's interesting. I think a lot of people have had this kind of experience. We'll talk about ladybugs in a minute, but do you have any comments on that about how ladybugs might deform the fruit? Um well, like every, every question, it's a compli- complicated one. First of all, your your listener was absolutely correct about the the lady beetles taking off. Uh, I've I've actually played around with that that myself. Uh, uh, in in past years, I've gone to uh, suppliers that were selling bagged convergent lady beetles for biological control in in, uh, in home gardens and just for fun I've released them in my home garden and then tracked uh, I've identified the lady beetles I've caught in the, in the coming days and as predicted by by others uh, those bags of lady beetles disperse immediately and it makes sense uh, the, the convergent lady beetles it's a common native species called hippodamia convergence the ones you buy here are from California, and they're harvested by um, heavy machinery, basically, that's used to scoop them up uh, in, in aggregations they form during, during the, the, uh, the dormant season. So they, in the, during the dry season, they'll come up from the valleys in California and they'll form aggregations up in the mountains, and they, they'll normally sit there uh, in in uh, in diapause uh, in, in in inactive aggregations until uh, the rains come again and then they'll fly back down into the valleys. But it, they're susceptible to to being harvested in in huge numbers, such huge numbers, and so efficiently that they can be sold, you know, by the thousand for a for a few dollars in in uh, in various garden centers. I don't see them much anymore. Ten or ten or fifteen years ago, they were they were sold everywhere, even in Zaire's uh, local supermarket. But uh, they're fine. They're har- well, probably more or less harmless. But they're not going to do any good in your garden because when you dump them out of that bag, their their sort of natural instincts will be, oh, I've just come out of 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 dormancy and I'm in an aggregation of millions. Of of, uh, of other lady beetles, I better just disperse out to look for uh, some space and some food. And indeed, that's what they do. And your they eight dollars is wasted by introducing <laughs> parasitoids and and diseases, which we wouldn't have had in our native lady beetle populations. But that's probably not as serious a problem as the exotic lady beetles that we're releasing, uh, or that we now have in in uh, throughout North America, things from Asia and Europe. Uh, they're very much a double-edged sword. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to go into lots more detail on lady beetles. I'm just going to go through two more quick emails, and then uh, we will have a little commercial break. But uh, first of all, Bob writes, 
Hi, Susan. I cannot believe you're doing a show on this topic. Amazing. I was wondering where I could get information on this topic. Thank you. Well, Bob, if you win the book, oh my gosh, you're going to get so much amazing information. (laughs) So let's hope you do. Um, Perry writes, how can I get rid of cane borer aphids on raspberries? Oh, no, Perry doesn't write that. Rita writes that. And I don't know where people are from. Okay, Rita, we're going to talk about some more information about predators that might feast on those cane borer aphids. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And was there another email here? And Dwayne, what is the main thing that attracts aphids to gardens? So let's let's have Dwayne's question be the last word before the commercial. So what do you think? Them, the, how do they know one garden is better than others, these aphids? <laughs> Boy, that's a that's a that's a tough question. Uh, I, I I think that uh, uh, if if the host is near the overwintering host and there's foliage at the right right stage, uh, they're likely to show up on that foliage. Uh, there are some kinds of aphids which are are uh, particularly attracted to to uh, uh, to damage or to unpruned trees. So, for example, the, the, the Probably the the most commonly encountered uh, uh, apple aphid in Ontario, at least the ones that I get brought into me for identification, the uh, the most often are the the, the woolly apple aphids, and uh, they're attracted to to, to damaged trees, so they'll they'll uh, form clusters on the wood uh, near where it's where it's been damaged, uh, you know, a broken twig or something like that. So. That might be in part an answer to your question. There, I wonder: the do damage. they s- do they smell out the good stuff, or do they see it? Or oh, there's a, there's an, <laughs> boy, oh boy, that's a tough question. Uh, and it's, I'm not sure uh, huh. what what they're responding to. Whether they're responding to something volatile, they have fairly long antenna, and and uh, they they probably are picking up on uh, uh, on something something volatile. Interesting. Okay. And we'll talk about, let's both remember to talk about the raspberry canes in the next part of the show. Um, Because I'm sure with raspberry canes, will it be the same as with other aphids, whether it's on fruit trees? Uh, Again, the predator insects will be helpful. Is that true with raspberries? Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of different aphids that attack raspberry and blackberry. And uh, the the suite of predators will be more or less the same as you'd get on your roses, your peach trees, your apple trees, whatever. Uh, in in th- th- there are there are specialized parasit- parasitoids. So the wasps that develop inside the aphids they're often quite different in the the, the different uh, um, aphids associated with different host plants. But the predators, which tend to be more general, such as the the, the flower flies, who, which are the most important predators. The uh, lady beetles, which are probably the most conspicuous predators, they're very similar from host to host. Okay, interesting. So, all right, well, let's let's take a moment now um, that we're all freaked out about aphids. <laughs> we're freaked out that they only give birth to girls, that they have so many children, that they... Anyways, we're going to find some solution after a commercial break. So... Folks, you're already writing in, and just remember that if you do write in your question or comment, you can win a copy of Stephen's wonderful book in studio101 at gmail.com. So, uh, Stephen, are you okay staying on the line for a few minutes, and we'll have some commercials? Yeah, sure. 
I'm going to fiddle around with my phone see if I can get the speakerphone to work. Oh, okay, okay. Thanks. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101, where we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com and the author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. We're going to be back after this short break. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to earthalivect.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. Looking for a quick, easy to apply and all natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hand fertilizer. If you want your fruit trees to live a long and healthy and productive life, it's essential that you water them properly when they're young. You need to water slowly and deeply so the moisture seeps into your young tree's expanding root system. That sounds easy enough, but you'd be surprised at how often the water you provide for your trees just rolls away, leaving its young roots high and dry. That's why we at TreePans.com have worked with orchards to develop a product that ensures all the water gets to your tree's root system. Our expandable tree pans funnel rain or irrigation water to the drip line of your young trees. Additionally, tree pans eliminate weed growth under the tree canopy, as well as protect your trees from mowers, tractors, and weed whips. Tree pans are used in orchards, city parks, and in residential yards. And once your young tree is established, you can move your tree pans to another young tree. Learn more about tree pans at treepans.com.
Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and this is the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. In this live radio show and podcast, we talk about the nicer things in life, like fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. And thanks so much for tuning in. So in the first part of the show, we talked about a nasty parasite that can swarm into your garden and literally suck the life out of your plants and trees. Those parasites are tiny little aphids, little pear-shaped bugs that can be red or green or white or black. Sometimes when aphids attack, we feel helpless. If only there was someone who could help. Well, there is. There are a number of friendly creatures, or at least friendly to humans or to us, including some beetles, some flies, and some wasps that would love to chow down on our invading aphids. And in this part of the show, we're going to talk about some of those creatures. On the line is Dr. Stephen Marshall, author of The Ultimate Entomology Tome, Insects, Their Natural History and Diversity. So, Stephen, when we think about aphid eaters, we think about lady beetles, right? Some of us call them ladybugs. So we can recognize them. They're sweet little spotted red beetles that flutter around our gardens and children love them. So what kind of insect are they and why do they have such a taste for aphids? Yeah, everybody seems to pick lady beetles first because they're so attractive and, and cute and everybody knows about them. And there are a lot of them out there. There's, there's a, a, a figure often quoted uh, from uh, Robert Vandenbosch, the, one of the great fathers of biological control, who's a California entomologist who came up with, with, the, with the, the, the number of uh, uh, convergent lady beetles. That's just one species of lady beetle uh, feeding on aphids in California every year. He said that every year in California, 7.5 million convergent lady beetles consume 3.75 trillion aphids. Those numbers are so huge, they, they're meaningless to me, but the, the take-home message is that there's a lot of lady beetles out there. And, and if, you, if you watch a bunch of aphids, as you pointed out at the start of your program, you're very likely to see the alligator-like larva, uh, long legs, kind of nasty-looking jaws, and typical, some, typically some colors and spikes on, on the, uh, the body. You'll see them marching through a bunch of aphids eating them uh, just just one after another. They really chomp through a lot of aphids. So they're conspicuous and they are common. And most of them eat aphids. We have about 450 North American uh, um, uh, lady beetle species, of which a lot were, uh, were uh, uh, deliberately introduced to North America from other places. That's something we might get back to later. It's uh, a practice I'm not entirely enthused about. But of that, of the, those, those uh, uh, native species here. Uh, most feed on, on, on aphids, but some feed on scale insects. There are some that's, that, that are specialized predators of mites, and there are even some that feed on, on mildews and molds. And there's actually a few lady beetles that eat plants, uh, not, not, not uh, fruit trees, but there are some lady beetles that attack uh, beans and, and related plants. Uh, not so many here in North America, but there are quite a few 
Phytophagus ladybeetles elsewhere. So it's, although it's a diverse family, the great majority are conspicuous, brightly colored aphid munchers. So we like them for that reason. And they're so cute. And also, I, I think I read in your book, they do also eat mealybugs. Is that true? Yeah, some do. It's it's unusual for the same species of, of lady beetle to move uh, freely from, from aphids to mealybugs, but there are some uh, mealybug specialists which uh, have a great reputation for uh, for knocking those pests uh, right down. Some are actually sold by garden centers and used quite effectively in greenhouses mm-hmm. and uh, other enclosed, limited environments. There's an Australian lady beetle called the, the, the usual name for it among entomologists is the crypt, uh, Cryptolamus montruseri. It's, it's a, a kind of a dull little uh, blackish-blue lady beetle that has larvae that look just like mealybugs. They're all covered with the white mealy stuff. <laughs> but like a wolf in sheep's clothing, they march through the mealybug masses, uh, uh, chomping down on them and killing great numbers. So they're a very, very effective, uh, almost like a biological pesticide. Wow, that's incredible. So all of these bugs you talk about, so many of them you can find in fruit trees. Now, I wanted to talk about, again, the mouth parts. Often when I find when people talk about insects, they talk about what the mouth parts are used for. So the aphids suck. They suck the sweet, yummy, you know, life out of your, your trees and plants. But uh, these guys, these lady bugs or lady beetles, they chew, am I right? They, they, they chop, that's right. They chop. In fact, the name beetle is from the old English bitula for biter, and it refers to the fact that they have uh, chewing mandibles. Chewing mandibles are, are basic to most insects. It's just that in the, the lineage leading to the, the true bugs, uh, the mandibles have become extended out to, to form the parts of uh, that these these syringe-like sucking mouth parts. And, you know, I should point out that they don't just suck. They also spit. Remember when I described those mouth parts to you, I said there's two channels, one for slurping stuff out. There's also one for spitting. And that's actually a critical point when when you, you consider what, what these things do to their hosts, plants, or animals. So, for example, if you look now at, at the uh, aphids on uh, the, the spring foliage on various fruit trees, you see that where the aphids are feeding, they're often uh, um, deformed and curled. They actually fold into a little house for the aphids in which the cluster of aphids are hidden. And that deformation is caused by a toxic saliva that they spit into their, uh, into their host plant. <laughs> so, so they don't just suck, although they do suck, obviously, in various, various contexts, but they also spit. Whereas, as you pointed out, lady beetles have very different kinds of mouth parts. Simple, chewing, big, massive chunky mandibles. Now, if we move to some of the other common aphid predators, they have different kinds of mouth parts. So lacewings are also very common predators of, of aphids. Lacewings are those delicate green-winged insects that you'll, the adults aren't often seen during the day. You're more likely to see them at night where their golden eyes reflect the, 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 the light from your porch light, sometimes called golden eyes. But if you find the larva, they look Sort of like lady beetle larvae, but instead of having chunky mandibles that they're grabbing uh, prey with, they have what look like sickles, two long, curved, hollow mandibles, and 
they impale their prey with these long, thin, sickle-like mandibles, lift them up, and suck their contents out. <laughs> so that marks the, 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 uh, the lacewing group. It's another order of insects, Neuroptera. And yet another group of, of, of aphid predators, and indeed by far the most important one from the, the grower's perspective, uh, is the, the, the flower flies. And the flower flies... Are, are nectar and pollen feeders as adults. They're not, they're not taking aphids as adults, but they're important pollinators. But the larva, which you'll find if you look really closely in clusters of aphids, I describe them as looking like green land leeches because most of them are kind of greenish in color and they look sort of like leeches. If you look at their head end, it's tapered and, and it ends in a pair of hooks. And they jab things with those two hooks, raise the front end of their body, and then suck out the contents of, of their prey. They're very sloppy feeders. Hmm. They, they suck half the contents out of the prey, then throw it away, and then kill another one. Hmm. It's easiest to watch that at night when they're most active. But you can find them almost invariably in any cluster of aphids, and they're the most important of, of aphid predators. I've got an interesting question from Anthony, and, you know, I wonder this myself. He says here, um, and Anthony's from Baltimore. In Susan's example to start the show, she noticed a horde of aphid predators that came to feed on the aphids. But what if aphid predators don't show up in our orchards? What do we do to rid the orchard of aphids? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going direct, to directly answer that question because I don't work on, on pesticides at all. Uh, but I can say that in general, the issue is not uh, one of, of the predators not showing up, they're always going to show up. The problem is that, that, first of all, a lot of them are really susceptible to, to pesticides, and some of the most effective predators are, are just knocked out instantly by, by any, any kind of pesticide use. And secondly, they may not be, be showing up in, in good enough numbers. So it's, it's analogous to the problem you have with pollinators. If you have an enormous industrial orchard covering square, square miles uh, with, with no natural habitat in sight, it's, there aren't going to be enough pollinators. And by the same token, there's, it's going to take a long time to, to get uh, any aphids, uh, aphid colonies uh, um, suppressed with, with a few natural enemies available. But, but they're, they're always there. I, I just... It, it, really, believe me, it's, in, in, unless there's, there's some mitigating factor like pesticide use, it's very, very unusual to find a, a cluster of aphids without some predators working their way through the, uh, the, the prey. So I find this interesting because in our orchard park, it's on a busy, busy street here in Toronto. And yet, like I said, literally, we had armies of these beautiful creatures coming to eat the aphids. Now, in our park, we have a beautiful pollinator garden. It's large. It's got flowers that, that are blossoming at every time. I just wonder if having an incredible diversity of plants and nurturing your space in a, in a sort of polyculture way you're more likely to have uh, these aphid eaters. And I know because I visit other, you know, areas in Toronto, I visited home backyards with terribly smitten trees and nobody came to rescue them. Like nobody came to the rescue. So I wonder if having, you know, just creating a beautiful and diverse um, area for these to attract these beneficials would really help. Well, well I think so. But, as, as I mentioned earlier, if you go to the technical literature, it, it's still a hot debate. There are, there are papers that, that show that in some cases, the, uh, a 
availability of, of, of a, diverse, a diverse grassy strip up the middle of an orchard or a weedy strip along the edge can actually lead to higher aphid populations or higher aphids of higher populations of some aphids and not others. So the the answer is never really that simple. <laughs> but I am inclined personally uh, to to like the idea that that uh, uh, diversity begets balance and uh, might. I don't have a great problem with with aphids in my garden because I'm an entomologist. <laughs> I like to have a diverse diverse property, so I have lots and lots of parasitoids and lots and lots of predators. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to read a few, and this is also relating to Anthony's question, a few comments from Facebook that I got with some solutions that people suggest. These are all people passionate grow- about growing fruit trees. So Jana in Pittsburgh wrote, um, I had trouble with my shaded currants solution was more sun so she somehow either moved the currents or cut the shading branches off and maybe it just made a better environment uh, for the beneficials we've got andy from california wrote first and foremost ant exclusion tanglefoot resin spread on stretching grafting tape uh, band around the trunk so he puts this band of tape around the trunk, he puts tanglefoot on it, and it stops ants from crawling up and farming those aphids. That's interesting. Yeah, he's, he's, he's absolutely right in that. As I, I pointed out earlier, there have been uh, there's, there's testicle literature showing that in some cases that uh, uh, ant exclusion uh, drives the, the parasitism and predation rate way, way up, because mm-hmm. otherwise the... Uh, parasitic wasps coming in to lay their eggs would be chased off by the ants. Predators would be chased off by the ants. Oh, cool. That's great. And that explains it. Yeah, we've got another one from Chapeth. I don't know. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I'm so sorry. Anyways, he says soap first, pyrethrum second, tobacco juice third. On my leafy vegetables, I stick with soap. And he's talking about insecticidal soap. Or I yank them out, he says, in the case of, in the case of mustard. My daughter's honeysuckle gets terrible aphids that I can't lick. I do not worry much about the trees unless they're killing the tips of new grafts. Um, now, just one thing I want to note, even insecticidal soap can harm some best beneficial insects. Am I right? You know, so if you're spraying your aphid, your aphidy leaf on your cherry tree and there happens to be some beautiful um, lady beetles on there in some stage or another, would you hurt the lady beetles? I, I would expect so. If you look closely at those clusters of aphids, the, the two most common predators that I see in, in aphids on a wide variety of hosts are uh, little tiny orange things, which are called aphid midges. They're really fantastic. And these, these little green larvae, soft-bodied larvae that I described as looking like land leeches, and they're the, the flower flies. The technical literature suggests the flower flies are the most important predators, and in some circumstances, these little wee orange aphid midges are, are also extremely effective, and they're both very soft-bodied insects and would, would quite likely succumb to uh, exposure to insecticidal soap. But I'm, 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 I'm saying quite likely because I don't actually have any personal experience with that. Hmm. But those I mean, little orange aphid midges are something that I sh- should mention. If, uh-huh. if, if you're sharp-eyed, you should look for them and watch them for a bit because they... they really do uh, do a job on an amazing number of, of, uh, of larvae, but they're very small, and the adults look like the tiniest mosquito you could imagine. So go to your, your tiniest mosquito, divide it in half, and make it more delicate. That's what the adults look like. But the larvae 
are, are uh, very conspicuous because of their orange color despite their minute size. And they're voracious predators of, of aphids. Hmm. Wow, great. That's good to know. So, oh, we got another email here from Bonnie. I don't know where Bonnie's from. I forgot to tell people to tell us where they're writing from. But anyways, Bonnie says, wow, what a creepy topic, but very, very interesting. Know your bugs is what I say. And thank you, Bonnie, because honestly, I'm discovering how fascinating the world of insects is. I've just, it's amazing. I used to think insects were sort of an inconvenience, and now I'm realizing they're fascinating. They can be on our side. And most insects are good ones. So oh, we've got another email here from Ron. Hi, Susan. Very interesting show as usual. Where can I get more information on Dr. Marshall? He is fantastic. Wow, that's lovely. So, uh, Stephen, do you have a website or anything or if people want more information? The easiest way to find it is, is to Google University of Guelph Insect Collection and just follow the link. Oh, perfect. Okay, University of Guelph Insect Collection. Thank you, Ron, for that question. Let's take a moment. Let's hear from our sponsors. And I want to talk, you're a fly specialist. I want to talk about flower flies after the break. Sure. So you okay hanging on the line for a couple more minutes? Okay, thanks. Wonderful. So you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back in just a moment. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. 
If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out orchardpeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at orchardpeople.com by visiting orchardpeople.com slash workshops. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to Susan. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. And I'm Susan Poisner, creator of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. My guest on the show today is Stephen Marshall, and we've been talking about how aphids can seriously damage fruit trees and other plants. Now, before the commercials, we talked about lady beetles and those other voracious creatures that can help protect our plants and trees by eating those aphids. You may have had a question or you may still have a question or comment. Do write us at instudio101 at gmail.com. And you could win an incredible book written by Stephen Marshall. um, And it's all about insects. It's a wonderful book. So now let's get back to the topic of insects that can help get that aphid eating job done. Stephen, can you tell me a little bit about flower flies? Where will we find them? What do they look like? And how can they help us with our battles against the aphids? Well, flower flies are ubiquitous features of, of uh, any sunny day, really. Uh, you'll find them on, on foliage, flowers, on, on splatters of honeydew under those uh, notorious clusters of aphids. The flower flies that most people are familiar with are the bright black and yellow things. They, some of them look a little bit like bees and wasps. Some of them look a lot like bees and wasps. As a matter of fact, I've seen a number of magazine articles and books with covers labeled, uh, here's a bee on a flower. And in fact, the photo on the cover is of a, of a flower fly. Wow. They're so close in, in, in appearance to, uh, to bees and, and wasps. But the ones that are most important in aphid control are, are, are not really all that bee-like. They're typically banded in black and yellow, so they're fairly bright. They're fast-flying flies. A lot of them are, are uh, able to hover over the, the, the foliage of the flowers, and they're very, sometimes they're called hover flies for that reason. Um, the, the adults are probably most likely to be seen on flowers, though. They're major pollinators. The larvae are much less conspicuous, and the larvae that are, are of interest in, in today's conversation belong to just a couple of, of the, the uh, subfamilies of, of surfids, and most of them are in a subfamily called the surfinae. And the surfines are the, uh, the typical little black and yellow ones, and the, they're the ones with the larvae that I describe as green land leeches. Maybe that's a silly way to describe them, but that's the way they, they, they look to me. They're uh, soft-bodied, eyeless, legless, uh, well, they're maggots, let's call them what they are, although that's kind of a negative name, isn't it? Predaceous maggots that, that come uh, uh, crawling along through the, the masses of, of aphids. Their, their heads are pointed, and they end in two little hooks. They sink those hooks into the aphids, they lift them up and consume or partially consume them. There's also some 
some very specialized uh, 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 flower flies. There's some that uh, go down on, uh, actually go onto the roots of fruit trees where you find things like uh, uh, woolly apple aphids making, making galls and causing damage to the roots. The larvae of these flower flies will go down and attack those aphids right on the roots. There are, are uh, aphids or um, flower flies that are great generalists. They'll feed on, on all sorts of, of uh, different aphids. There are some that are specialists and will only lay their eggs, for example, in a mass of woolly apple uh, aphids. And taking as, taken as an aggregate, they're by far the, the most important uh, predators of, of, of aphids. And they have the bonus of being the most important pollinators, too. Wow. Well, the bee people would argue that, that with me. Well, and now you say they're the most important, and yet we were talking about lady beetles and how much they eat. Are you telling me that, that uh, flower flies will eat more aphids than lady beetles? Every paper I've ever read that has, has stacked up the contribution or the numbers uh, has, has ended up with flower flies on top. They're just a little less conspicuous. Aphids, you know, stand there and they're bright red and black and they don't fly away when you, <laughs> you approach, approach them as adults. And the, the larvae are fairly conspicuous, uh, not, not uh, hidden away in green like most of the surfaces. So uh, lady, lady beetles get a lot of the credit and they deserve a good deal, but, but they're not as important in my opinion. Now, I understand, am I right to understand that the flower flies actually, they like the honeydew, they like the nectar. Um, So why would they eat the aphids too? Why don't they farm them like ants do? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know of any fly that actually farms uh, uh, aphids. I I don't think it would be a a very adaptive strategy since uh, adult flies have soft, spongy mouth parts and they wouldn't be very good in in, in defending, well, most adult flies have, have soft, spongy mouth parts, the ones associated with aphids anyways. There are flies with, with, with uh, uh, spear-like mouth parts, robber flies, that, that attack other insects. But, but they're, they're, they're not like, uh, uh, like ants that can, can grab uh, invaders with their mandibles and tear them to pieces or chase them off. Wow. Uh, but why do, they, why do they go for the honeydew? Well, uh, a, lot of, a lot of flying insects require uh, energy uh, and the uh, main sources of that energy, that those sugars, are nectar and honeydew, and uh, both are very, very important to surfaces. Hmm. Interesting. Now we are unfortunately coming to the end of the show, but I wanted to just say one word about damselbugs. Now I'm hoping that after this show, the listeners are going to go online, look for pictures, because from my experience, uh, you know. Uh, knowing what to look for is going to be key. Whether you, you see a maggot on a leaf, you think, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? So if there's anything we can do, it's looking up these beneficials and knowing to recognize them. So tell me a word or, in a word or two about damselbugs. Why are they also good guys for us? Well, yeah, I mentioned damselbugs because uh, they're, they're one of many groups of predaceous true bugs. So they also have sucking mouth parts fundamentally the same as, as, as aphids, but, but they look really different. Because if you pick up a damsel bug, it's a small brown bug with a, with a conspicuous beak. And you look at that conspicuous beak, it looks like a weapon. It's this big sword slung underneath the head. Uh, it, it looks like it means business. And indeed it does. They can spin that out and impale a wide variety of, of, of prey items. The same is true for the assassin bugs, which look a lot like damsel bugs, but a, but but a little bit bigger. Uh, although 
right now the most common assassin bug is, is, is green, whereas damsel bugs and some other assassin bugs are brown. There's actually a, a significant number of different predaceous species of bugs that you'll find in orchards, probably about a dozen different predaceous species. Hmm. So we've talked about just a few of them. Now, there is somebody who is uh, wrote in an email to us and who's very lucky because they will be able to read your book. <laughs> so let's see who has won a copy of your beautiful reference book, Insects, Their Natural History and Diversity. And I'm really enjoying the book. I'm enjoying looking things up, learning more and becoming my own kind of expert. Well, no expert at all, but you know, I'm trying. So our winner of your beautiful book, um, is Dwayne. Dwayne is the winner. I don't know where you are, Dwayne, but you're going to get an email from us and we will sort out shipping this beautiful book to you. So, and for everybody listening to the show, do research the types of insects we talked about today. There's so much to learn, but we're starting in a nice little chunk of aphids and aphid eaters. So I want to thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on the show today. It was so interesting. I feel like we could have other conversations on other different types of insects, and we'd learn so much from you. My pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. So goodbye for now. Hopefully we will talk again. Okay, thanks, Susan. Goodbye. Bye. So that was entomologist Stephen Marshall of the University of Guelph. And that's it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Now, usually at this time, I just say goodbye. I'll see you next month. But we can get together sooner than that, if you like. On Thursday, June the 7th, I'm hosting a free webinar that might be of interest to you if you're thinking of planting fruit trees or if you already have some fruit trees and you want to learn how to care for them. My webinar is called Growing Fruit Trees with Ease, Easy Ways to Keep Your Trees Healthy and Productive. As I said, it's taking place Thursday, June 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can learn more about it by going to orchardpeople.com slash webinars. Orchardpeople.com slash webinars. And I look forward to seeing all you guys then. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And I look forward to digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you next month. been listening to the urban forestry radio show on reality radio 101 to learn more about the show and to download the podcast where i cover lots more great topics you can visit orchardpeople.com podcast the show is broadcast live on the last tuesday of every month and each time i have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees food forests and arboriculture if you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at @urbanfruittrees. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.